0: In this age of digital media, how can we critically think about issues of power in the design and use of technologies? About this and many other important topics is this conversation with J. Nathan Matias in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Bochkowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif al-Thani chair in communication. Together with Mora Matassi, Doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am delighted to have with me Nathan Matias, who is an assistant professor at the Department of Communication uh, at Cornell University, where he's also a field member in information science. He's also the founder of the Citizens at Technology Lab, which conducts research um, uh, on citizen behaviors, citizen behavioral science with communities of millions for a flourishing internet. Before going to Cornell, uh, Nathan was a a postdoc or associate research scholar at Princeton University in the psychology department and in the Center for Information Technology Policy as well as in the sociology department. And he was a visiting scholar at MIT, the place where he got his PhD in media, arts, and sciences. Uh, before then, he got a master's at the University of Cambridge and a bachelor at Elizabethtown Town College. Nathan has been the recipient of many, many prestigious uh, grants and fellowships and has a lot of influential publications in venues ranging from proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, Nature, uh, CSCW, uh, social media, and society, and so on and so forth. Nathan, welcome to El Café Latinex.
1: Thank you for welcoming me. I am excited to be here.
0: Thank you so much. So how did it all begin for you? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor?
1: My first semester in college, I had a sneaky professor who said to me, that literature paper you wrote at the end of the semester, I think might be interesting to send to an academic conference. And I thought, what is an academic conference Uh, on my father's side? My father moved to the the US from Guatemala um, and and he only completed uh, high school in his late 20s early 30s um and my mother's side of the family didn't really have that much experience with uh kind of the secular higher education world and so it was all completely new to me and i thought well my professor thinks this is interesting i guess i will (laughs) write this up and send it to an undergrad conference and it was this really amazing experience of being in a room with other people who were passionate about ideas were interested in listening to each other and had a belief that knowledge mattered and that idea really stuck with me I. um, You know, during my undergrad years, I was a computer science minor I strangely getting some computer science research published. uh, But also very interested in these. questions about knowledge production and literature and the stories we tell and how that translates to power. And so I think uh, the, the lifelong journey of bringing those things together definitely started when I was, was an undergrad and realized that it was actually possible to explore these questions as a job, something I still pinch myself about.
0: Excellent. And, but then you started with literature and you have moved into a multidisciplinary space that combines computer science, the social sciences, the behavioral sciences. How was that journey? I mean, you went for a graduate degree, first graduate degree at Cambridge in literature. But then you went to MIT for a computer science education. How was that transition?
1: Yeah, I you know, I had been interested in computing from, you know, my teenage years. Uh, I remember my parents uh, cobbling together, really, the resources to uh, get, a you know, I think it might even have been a secondhand computer because they had the sense that computers might be important for their boys. Uh, My my father recently retired from a a career as a night shift mechanic in a factory in Pennsylvania. And so I'm sure it was a bit of a, a reach to, to get that equipment in the late 90s, and I was obsessed, but also I had a mentor who wisely told me uh, that if I wanted to like do well in computing, I ought to focus on s- subjects and topics outside of computing, because what were computers but a lens on the world, and, and I kind of took that to heart and I studied literature, I uh, when I was at Cambridge, I experienced one of the most influential mentorships I've had, uh, which was with uh, Professor Priya Gopal, who teaches postcolonial literature, and, and it was really in, in the classes and conversations with, with Priya that I was able to start formalizing and thinking about the relationship between knowledge production and power, you know, writing about and thinking about the printing press and the control over publication in colonial and post-colonial eras, Uh, it wasn't until a bit later that I realized that I could bring those things together in my study and and practice of computing. I think the final thread to to mention is that, you know, I I went to MIT because I had a passion for uh, bringing computing together with with, uh, social good initiatives, nonprofits, and And things related to to media and international development and I quickly realized that our capacity to create technologies and put them into the world far outstripped our capacity to actually know if any of them was doing any good and that that realization is really what pushed me into uh, learning how to think like a social scientist when I was a PhD student and, and start to build my ability to uh, ask, you know, social questions in a rigorous way, Uh, yes, incorporating critique and ideas and and critical thought that I learned studying literature, yes, incorporating knowledge of technology that I learned as a technologist myself, Uh, but then asking like what is it actually doing in people's lives uh, and in society uh, and picking up those social science skills that have, have become really central. What I do at Cornell. Very interesting. So, so you're at Cambridge.
0: You're getting this perspective on the world. Did you consider multiple programs, or did you just know that you wanted to go to MIT to work with Ethan and on these particular topics?
1: I had no idea um, you know i think for me going to cambridge was this huge just a, a huge transition and enter entry into a world that i could not have imagined before you know my you know my two worlds really were the world of rural pennsylvania where i grew up and also the the world of like stories and communities um like both uh latinx communities in central pennsylvania and then like stories about my family uh, and connections to guatemala where you know my you know my father's family grew up uh he grew up in an area without electricity without running water Um, he was one of the first people in his family to get any kind of high school education and so to show up at cambridge university on a scholarship and suddenly be surrounded by people who believed that their actions and ideas could actually change the world was just a, a completely new environment for me and then to realize actually some of these people are going to be running the world uh, was astonishing and so um, I think it took me some time to ask, well, does this mean that I have the opportunity to do? What does it mean to like to some degree take on that kind of responsibility and, and bear it responsibly. And uh yeah, after Cambridge, I took some time in the tech industry. I was also involved in starting a number of nonprofits. And um, it was really only after that that I um after a few years of, of kind of time in industry and nonprofits that I applied to uh A number of programs I actually applied to programs in rhetoric I applied to programs in. um, computer science and then I applied to the media lab which wasn't you know it's kind of a choose your own adventure degree, and it was it was a complete serendipity that I ended up with Ethan. uh, His work uh, with global voices this amazing international network of citizen media uh, and translators had been a huge inspiration to me for years Uh, and when i applied i didn't know he was going to be faculty at mit um and so i applied to the media lab unsure if it was really the place to go and then one day i got an email from ethan saying hello by the way i'm going to be a professor at the media lab i'd like to have an interview and uh it was an amazing uh an amazing convergence of of, uh, serendipity that has profoundly changed my life for the better. How was your experience there? As you
0: said, I mean, MIT is in part the place of the endless frontier, as Vannevar Bush once wrote. And the Media Lab is one of the least structured units in terms of curriculum and training at MIT, right? so and you you, it strikes me that you have an entrepreneur's heart right and um and uh, the attitude of you know mixing ideas from different fields and a passion for that how how was your experience as a graduate student in a place uh, like that
1: there are so many things that i loved and a number of things i felt very complicated about during my time there um, the Media Lab was and, and is, I hope, still a, a place that encourages and fosters creative imagination like no other. Um, like, you know, Nicholas Negroponte sometimes talked about it as like a, a reality distortion field, and on the good days you enter this space and you believe that you can imagine anything or do anything. And you're constantly trading ideas and sharing inspiration and working on things with with other people, often in in ways that um, may not have been combined before. Uh, And and that's a very exciting environment to be in. It can be very challenging to feel grounded in that kind of environment um, because everyone's doing something different from you, and uh, you often have to create your own pathways. For me, that came through the relationships and mentorships that I found outside of the Media Lab uh, by connecting with social scientists, with legal scholars, um, and taking classes, some at MIT, some at Harvard, uh, in social science methods and research and approaches. And that, that was an important grounding function for me. I think also you know, you mentioned Jennifer Bush's The Endless Frontier, Um, there's a uh, dark side to the optimism, right? That is is an extremely colonial analogy for what it means to engage in knowledge work, right? The the notion that as scholars we are out to like explore that map, uh, you know, comes straight from the mindsets that have created so much harm and injustice and pain and suffering in this world and and I think sometimes uh in the joy of entrepreneurial spirit um people don't interrogate the like problems and risks and shortcomings of um you know of of that spirit itself and and I think that uh, dual almost hegelian thesis antithesis synthesis was something that especially uh, characterized my time at the media lab where I, I wanted to engage in this boundless creativity but i also you know by merit of, of my own personal experience and history and my own research uh, as a someone who studied post-colonial literature was all too aware of what happens when people with power and privilege feel like they can pursue an endless frontier um, uh, without question.
0: How, how has that then shaped your research program?
1: That A duality, ways.
0: right? So, yeah, what's yeah. that? That duality, that, that Hegelian tension. That duality.
1: Yeah, so... I think at, at you know, one of the kind of simplest ways is, let me see, oh, actually I'll, I'll start by talking about an icon that I have on my wall in my office. I, I don't make it to my office as often during, during COVID, but um, I have an icon of uh, Bartolome de las Casas on my wall. And, and for those who are not familiar with Las Casas, he was a 16th century uh, Spanish like, landowner, he was a priest, and also uh, sometimes called the defender of, of the indigenous people, uh, because he was part of the uh, colonial, Well, he was one of the first colonists, Spanish colonists, to the Americas, but also had a change of heart and, and spent much of his life uh, opposing and trying to reform colonization, or at least imagine uh, ways uh, of like dealing with the situation that would uh, involve at least some amount of indigenous power and autonomy. And I think uh, one of the things that I, I came to see from my time at, at the Media Lab was that you can have cre- tremendous creativity and bring uh, you know, exciting forms of entrepreneurial uh, energy to the work of both envisioning alternative futures but, and also envisioning ways to restrain power that can serve the common good. And so, um, you know, people would go through the MIT Media Lab and see all of these uh, displays, almost like a museum of the beautiful and and creative technologies that people were envisioning. Um, uh, I recently you know, a few years ago visited the labs of consumer reports, which I think of as the like the inverse of the media lab and you actually go from room to room. And you see these pretty cool testing technologies that uh, designers and engineers have created in order to make sure that the things created by visionary engineers aren't going to kill people aren't going to have or at least if they do, we know, so that we can ban them or fix them, and so I think that realization that um, antithesis, right, is also a form of creativity and, and can help us uh, collectively head in a, in a you know, synthesis that's good for people, uh, was a, a key realization for me during my time at the Media Lab. Hmm.
0: Fascinating. How? So you have these ideas, you are working at a cutting edge field. How do you shift from the media lab to a communication department? And to a department that that has really always been firmly grounded in the study of communication that has broadened what that means, right? Um, But has been a sort of a mainstream and, and highly regarded communication department. How was the transition for you?
1: I think, you know, the the best I can say is that in many ways, it's, it's felt like finding, finding a home, right? In in some ways, the Media Lab was a great home because it had that like creative spirit and I loved being among people who constantly imagining. What I, what I love about being in communication uh, is that it's a, you know, it's a field that is comfortable and experienced at asking critical questions experience in asking questions about collective human behavior. Uh, It's it's a field that's grappled with um, questions of power, questions of like persuasion and influence. And and also, you know, from the very beginning has considered the role of technology in uh, human affairs, right, Whether, whether it's newspapers or radio or television or even just being in a room having conversations and making decisions all of those things are socio-technical endeavors and uh, I love that the field of communication has a deep and rich history of considering those questions and also a a strong tradition in asking those questions from a public good public interest perspective Uh, that's not everyone but it's a it's a Important thread within the, within the field. And so that's something that's really made me excited to be uh, a communication scholar because I feel like those different components that are so important to the research I do and so important to my own story and identity are recognized and supported within the field.
0: Hmm. Very interesting. And now your transition towards communication sort of overlaps in time with your transition from being a graduate student to being an assistant professor how has that transition been
1: well i you know i feel like i need to put a, uh, in addition to my cornell uh, credentials professor at zoom university uh, it's been a <laughs> you know, it's, it's been a very strange uh, few years right to to have a global pandemic hit just a few months into my time uh, as as an assistant professor, and you know, everyone has their own uh, you know pandemic story, and it's affected people in so many different ways. It's been a hard few years, um, but it's also been a, a period of time where the importance of the work that we do has become even clearer. That we're. We've gone through this extraordinary time where so much has remained possible due to our reliance on communication technologies. And at the same time, the concerns that we have about the impact of those technologies and how they're used in society are justifiably increasing. And so even as you know, I myself have been trying to make it through day by day through the pandemic, I feel more energized. as I listen to communities, and as I think about the work that we're doing at CAT Lab, uh, to, to really see the, the importance and urgency of that work.
0: And since you mentioned your lab, how, how what's the experience of launching, envisioning, launching, and running a research lab? right what i mean because not very many of us do that um uh how do you choose the focus of the lab how do you organize it how you get support from it um can you share some of that with with the audience and some do's and don'ts
1: that? i'd be delighted no? and it's it's a longer conversation because there is much bureaucracy in running a lab but i think there are a few a few things that I've learned uh, over time. The first thing to know is that I actually started the lab before I joined Cornell. Right. I I wasn't 100% sure that I would go into a faculty position, but I knew I wanted to be doing this work. And so while I was a postdoc at Princeton, I actually started what you know what became Cat Lab um, as a nonprofit with an umbrella organization. So I was raising funds into this nonprofit I was hiring staff and we were doing research in parallel to my work at Princeton, and we just completed the process of merging that nonprofit into Cornell two and a half years into my time as, as an assistant professor. Um, here's I think what makes a few things that make CatLab distinct so our, our vision really is this idea of a world where digital power is both guided by evidence and accountable to the public and we do that by collaborating with the public in in what we call citizen or community behavioral science. uh, To collectively choose what the research questions are with community partners design studies and then carry them out Uh, we've done research on everything from today's topic which looked at uh, the spread of misinformation by algorithms we've studied. Online harassment and how companies do or do not support people. Uh, We've done research on uh, testing ways to spread gratitude and appreciation and broaden inclusion in uh, global knowledge production, uh, especially outside of the West. And uh, we've done work to audit algorithms. And all of those studies are, are studies where there was a motivating question that originated with a community that was affected by that question. And we then paired that question with a conversation and an open question in science, like there's this model of use inspired basic research that we uh, try to adopt wherever possible. Uh, And then we create custom software um, which we then reuse in multiple studies to support this kind of large scale crowdsourced community science and so. Some of our contributions uh, contribute to computer science. Some of our contributions contribute to the social sciences, but in all cases, we're trying to generate practical knowledge for communities and as much as possible, also trying to communicate to policy in this kind of reinforcing cycle uh, of research. Now, the, the upshot of that is that CatLab, in addition to having me as a, as a professor and having students involved in studies Uh, We also have professional staff, we have a software engineer, we have on and off data scientists, we have a a research manager who. uh, is someone with a PhD who. uh, organizes communities does a lot of the translation work and so there's this process of participatory research that we've learned how to conduct. um, That on the good days uh you know it all works together to support the research the engagement goals and the educational mission um, and i guess the final thing to say is that you know, that of course takes money to run it's not cheap to do uh, and so i've been very grateful to uh you know the combination of private donors and charitable foundations and and also uh, more recently uh, you know federal funders who have been funding this work, either because they care about our process or they care about the questions we're asking or the science that we can produce. There's much more uh, to say about those kinds of things. And I've actually blogged a little bit about um, how to think about tenure as a researcher who does community-engaged work. Um, And also, I would encourage folks to look at a great blog post that Max LeBoyron of the uh, uh, Clear Lab uh, has published about uh, building decolonial engaged research labs that I found a very helpful uh, inspiration.
0: Excellent. Now, I have two follow-up questions that are related, but they're not exactly the same. One is, I would imagine that you have more ideas brought forth by community partners than projects that you can actually pursue, I would imagine, which means that there is some process of selection on your part and on your lab's part. And I'd be curious to hear how you choose. In parallel, related but not the same, looking at your vita and reading some of your publications, as I mentioned at the beginning, you have a broad range of disciplinary venues that you only engage intellectually but within which you publish right One thing is you know you draw ideas from fields one through three but you only publish in field one right versus PNAS, social media society, human computer you know CSCW um, you know nature. So how do you choose projects? How do you choose venues?
1: This is a really challenging set of questions, and you know when I was a graduate student it it was on the basis of what am I interested in right now, and what are communities saying. Um, You know, over time, as you build up an organization, a lab, you have multiple people's needs to to bring together and. um, for, For researchers who do community engaged research, I think there are actually a lot of different ways you can do this. When when I was at Princeton, I was a postdoc in the Pollock lab with uh, Betsy Pollock, who's an amazing social psychologist who does research on social norms. And Betsy has very specific scientific questions that she's committed to pursue and that she's known for, and she's a world leader in. And so she reviews many possible collaborations before choosing the very small number that are um, perfectly suited for the questions she wants to ask and also the value that it can bring to society. And that was actually one of the conversations that Betsy and I came back to again and again, like what are those selection criteria and how do they shape the kind of scholar that you can be? Uh, other researchers um, uh, have what maybe philosophers might say call it like an ethic of care where their commitment may not be primarily to a specific question but may be primarily to a set of communities or constituents and those researchers might have a pretty broad range of studies and venues they might produce because their goal is really to center around a particular community i think at, at cat lab we've landed somewhere in the middle um, and that's that's partly because uh, i think there are certain kinds of research that we are better at doing and certain questions that we keep on hearing from communities that really matter. And so I think at the moment, the, our current thinking is that, you know, one kind of research we do looks at the like politics and ethics of doing research and engineering research technologies. Um, and so a lot of our studies in computer science venues uh, take the work of knowledge production and the engineering behind it, and say, well, let's interrogate the values of that. Let's reimagine how power could work, and let's show how you can build a piece of software to support forms of knowledge and power that are more equitable, hopefully, uh, than corporations doing, you know, lots of research on us without our consent. Um, and so we've had a number of, of papers that do that kind of work, and then you know we have uh, scholarship that we're trying to do uh, that I think often is is advancing um, uh, like communication scholarship either in these questions of digital governance when we're doing qualitative work or um, like the social psychology of digital governance. Uh, and the way that we kind of knit those things together is through this idea that um, Caldini and, and a number of others have talked about as full cycle research, where you maybe start with qualitative work that then informs uh, your quantitative work, and then that loops back into theory. So we have uh, different parts of that cycle we send off to different, uh, different kinds of scholarly venues but the hope is that they're mutually reinforcing each other and enriching uh, each other along the way.
0: That's great. Now, the orientation of your research program uh, informed strongly by your positionality strikes me as quite contrarian to the overall evolution of computing, you know, at least since the commercialization of the web, with the, the growing level of concentration of economic power in a handful of uh, corporations that have reach and resources that would have been unthinkable um, uh, you know, 50 years ago, even 30 years ago, you know, uh, when you know, Microsoft versus DOJ. Um, the, 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 the the power that Microsoft had uh, is nothing comparison to the power that even Microsoft well, now, has today, let alone Apple or Amazon, Google or Meta. So um, that's the again, the thesis antithesis, right? Um, and you are not alone in this quest. But in part, you are proceeding in a world in which the solutions for people for their everyday lives are provided by organizations with very different sets of values. How do you keep it going? Do you ever get discouraged? Um, How does that factor into your work?
1: Yeah, so I think you're totally right to identify the like central role of money and power in what questions get asked and what technologies get built Uh, you know i've written about this when advocating for independent industry independent research right now you know people who study technology are largely funded by the tech companies and even even if um you know even if we were in a situation where you know, no one was engaging in overt corruption, it would still influence the kinds of questions we ask and also influence public trust in the kind of knowledge we produce, right? If Uber funds a group of economists to do a study saying that Uber's impact on the economy is good, right? It might be true, but people are gonna understandably question whether it is true. and so you know i've been an advocate for uh industry independent research and it's one thing to say uh we need it and we want to do it and it's another thing to actually convince people to put in the resources and find those resources uh and i think there is a a, going to be a real uh, need for um more people to advocate for that, and more creativity in creating the funding pools that are going to support that kind of independent research. There's a very real risk that the small number of like organizations and university researchers doing this work will like end up competing with each other in ways that weaken the overall uh, efforts, rather than grow this industry-independent effort and and i'm currently working with a number of uh others um uh rebecca trumbull susan Benish, and another group to start building a coalition for this kind of group so for this kind of work so that we can collectively strengthen that industry independent research i i do get discouraged sometimes um i think it's a normal part of being a scholar that you like experience rejection more than you experience acceptance um and doubly so right if 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 you are someone coming from uh if you if you have a standpoint as an underrepresented minority then you're facing institutions that have histories of excluding you and your viewpoints um and so the very thing that you perhaps have to offer right it's not the only thing but one of the special things you have to offer the world is exactly the thing that the world that you're part of may be less open to considering I know that's been many people's cases and I've certainly experienced that myself and that can be really discouraging uh you know the the two things two or three things that I find encouraging um you know I know scholars who study um uh kind of race and ethnicity in education uh talk about this idea of community cultural wealth and um i'm forgetting the name it's terrible i'm forgetting the name of the education scholar who who's coined the term but they point out that people who come from marginalized communities bring capacities and assets that are sometimes um undervalued or just not as present in dominant groups and You know i come from a family that survived civil war and genocide right um you know the the stories in my family are are you know are about things like trying to make sure you have enough food when there's an earthquake and you're deciding whether to eat dog food out of cans or not right and you're grateful for the can of dog food right um and so you know taking on corporate power Feels like a small thing sometimes compared to the kinds of things that I know, you know, my family and people in my community have uh, survived and flourished through. And so, recognizing that cultural wealth has been uh, really important, and that's that's one of the things that I find empowering from reading history. Right? I mentioned Las Casas. There are many other stories, both within the the story of uh latin americans in in this country uh and more broadly of people who faced uh you know big power imbalances and managed to persist through them and so i find that uh turning to history uh helps keep me encouraged that even if some of these things may take decades uh like persisting if you can uh can really make a difference
0: Excellent. And let me switch gears for a minute. You talked about um, how communication uh, has become a hospitable intellectual space for you, given your trajectory and your interest. What has been your everyday experience in navigating the field as a whole, not necessarily your department, right? but the field as a whole what kind of receptivity have you found for your ideas, your research program, your positionalities, etc.?
1: Yeah, I you know I am still continuing to get to know and explore the field of communication. There are some corners that I've I've really appreciated over the years. Um, so I know a number of people uh, in communication contribute to the Association of Internet Researchers, Mm -hmm. which was a very helpful and supportive community to me. Uh, When I was a graduate student, it was a place where I could encounter people who had critical perspectives, who did qualitative research, who did quantitative research, and especially at the time, someone who was in a more uh, technology-oriented department as a PhD student, that was a really exciting and refreshing environment to find peers and and mentors. I think beyond that, um, I, you know, I, throughout my my journey as a grad, grad student up through being a faculty member, um, uh, read and learned from and appreciated a lot of uh, research coming out in communication journals, and and I do think that um, uh, the openness to interdisciplinarity has been uh, really valuable. You know, no discipline is perfect, and I know that um, there are some powerful and important critiques, particularly about um, uh, the whiteness of communication as a field, uh, and about more generally, like diversity and representation in communication. Something that uh, you know is is a, is a kind of structural issue in U.S. higher education more broadly. That communication is no no different. On. And that's something that I think um, uh, has a lot of room for improvement, and, and something I'm dedicated to trying to do what I can in my small corner of the field to change. As I, you know, I'm transitioning from this role mm-hmm. as graduate student into, uh, you know, faculty member who at least has some amount of power in 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 this field.
0: Totally, and you wrote uh, eloquently that um, was in five thirty-eight that analysis that you wrote with uh, Neil Lewis and um, two other people. Their names escape my mind. Hope
1: and yeah. Jasmine Mitani.
0: There you go. Uh, you wrote uh, very clearly and eloquently about the problems. Then that's then a great segue, or some of the problems, not the problems, but some of the problems, into my last question. So. If you had magical powers then, and could be granted one wish about how you would like the field of communication to change, what
1: would you wish for? Aside from everyone getting a pony. um, Yeah, you know, I think that You know, as someone still getting to know the field it's hard to say yes this is my vision for how the how the field should change but you know i do think that um, the the degree to which a field can uh, like benefit society right we're in we're in this business because knowledge means something and i think that uh you know my hope for communication as a field is that it will be able to both um, broaden who it benefits, uh, while also being consequential, and I think those things go together, right? That um, you know we're seeing an actually an exciting time for uh, communication scholarship to be heard, especially on these communication and technology questions. So many folks from the field are. Um, Uh, kind of rising in prominence and having a public voice on critical issues related to the role of technology in society uh, and where it's taking us and where we're taking it. Um, And I think the the next chapter for us is to be consequential, that um, uh, there's just so much need for uh, changes in policies, changes in how uh, companies carry things out and having a voice is one part of that, but then having power and actually seeing that voice uh, create change uh, is going to be crucial if communication scholars and others who are working on these same questions are to actually contribute to a more flourishing society. All
0: right, that's a great thought. Thank you so much, Nathan. This has been a fabulous conversation. I want to thank also our audience for staying with us through the end. And I want to invite everybody to join us to listen to the next episode of El Café Latinx.
1: Thank you, Pablo. It's been a pleasure.
0: El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcicki, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi.